First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 9 and the subject of apostasy, but I, I'll confess to you, I have a much longer than usual introduction. So as you're turning to 1 John 2 again, let me promise that we will get into this text. But first, I want to explain why I chose this text to deal with. Over the past month or so, one of the biggest stories in the evangelical community has been the apostasy of a couple of young evangelical celebrities. First, there was Josh Harris. Ten years ago, he was considered one of the bright lights on the conservative evangelical horizon. He was a homeschooled kid from a very conservative evangelical family. At age 20, he was already a best-selling author. His first and best-known, best-selling book was titled, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and it was a manifesto in favor of chaperoned courtship rather than dating. And uh, the unprecedented popularity of that book was, at the time, hailed as proof that younger evangelicals were beginning to reject the liberalism and skepticism that were the hallmarks of the emerging church movement in those days. And uh, to most people, I think, on the conservative side of the evangelical spectrum, Josh Harris looked like a young, devoted, wise beyond his years spiritual hero. And that book won lots of accolades and awards. I know of families and individuals, even here at Grace Church, who thought that Harris's book was a deeply insightful answer to both the angst and the pitfalls of, that we all faced when we were dating. Now, here at Grace, in Grace Life, not many people read that book because, uh, frankly, most of our group aren't dating anymore. <laughs> we kissed dating goodbye years ago. But some people asked me what I thought of that book, and here in the student division, and I think pretty uniformly on the pastoral staff here at Grace, the position we took was that if anybody asked about that book, we didn't recommend it. And without going into an exhaustive critique of it, I'll just say it didn't seem like a good idea to encourage teenagers to take advice on dating and matrimony from someone who was barely out of his teens and still unmarried and had never really dated. But he did later court and marry a girl, and he wrote a couple of more books after that first one. I think his best book was one titled Dug Down Deep. It was a survey of key doctrines. It was a beginner, be, beginner's guide to Christian doctrine. And although it was written by, again, a guy who was barely out of his teens and who'd never gone to seminary, you could read that book, and it was sufficiently orthodox. It was engaging. It was easy to read. He clearly had a gift for writing. And again, I didn't recommend the book, mainly because there are much better books on theology for beginners. I, I recommend uh, J.I. Packer's book, uh, I think it's called A Concise Theology or something like that, if you're looking for a book like that. But also, in the words of one reviewer, the personal biography of Josh Harris's book bleeds through every page. He put a lot of himself in that he couldn't seem to keep himself out of the picture, even in a book that was supposed to be about Christ. And then that same reviewer also said this, and I'm quoting from him. He said, I noticed how often he references girls and his past attraction to girls, girls he knew, guys he knew. 
who said this or that, and over-the-top referencing of sex. Nevertheless, multiple, with multiple books on, already on the Christian bestseller list and, and barely out of his 20s, of course, Josh Harris caught the attention of influential evangelical leaders. The Gospel Coalition promoted him heavily. When C.J. Mahaney decided to become a denominational executive rather than a local church pastor, he laid hands on Josh Harris and made him the senior pastor of Covenant Life Church. That was the flagship church of the Sovereign Grace Ministries, the church that C.J. himself had pastored and founded. It was a large church with 20 experienced full-time pastors, and Josh Harris was only 28 years old and had never been a pastor. So it seemed weird at the time. A decade after that, with C.J. Mahaney and that entire denomination of churches struggling in the wake of some scandals over child abuse and a subsequent cover-up, Josh Harris suddenly announced that he was leaving the ministry in order to enroll in seminary at Regent College, Vancouver. Now, Regent bills itself as, and these are their words, an innovative graduate school of theology. An innovative graduate school of theology. It sounds bad, right? It is. Both theologically and geographically, Regent was on the opposite side of the continent from everything Josh Harris had ever professed to believe. And so his decision to enroll there seemed pretty worrisome at the time. And then just last month, Harris announced on Instagram that he and his wife, who were now parents to three children, were divorcing. And the only reason for that that he gave was, quote, some significant changes have taken place in both of us. Two weeks later, he announced on Instagram again that he was abandoning the faith completely. He wrote this, quote, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. A few days after that, he punctuated that announcement by posting a series of photographs on Instagram expressing his unqualified support for gay pride. Now, it's both tragic and appalling to see someone who was touted as the ideal model for the young, restless, reformed generation to apostatize in, in such a, a proud and public way. Josh Harris says he's going to refuse to disappear from the public eye, and posting pictures that, in effect, renounce everything he ever stood for is, in his words, important for me. He says, I am not ashamed. Again, those are his exact words. Then, about a week after Josh Harris posted his album of gay pride photos. Another quasi-evangelical celebrity also made use of Instagram to announce to the world that he is abandoning Christianity. This is Marty Sampson. He is best known, he's the best known and most prolific songwriter, by some accounts, the best songwriter for Hillsong. Hillsong is that Australian charismatic movement that has gained worldwide influence among younger evangelicals, largely on the strength of Marty Sampson's songs. Now, you may not know him by name, but you have undoubtedly heard and maybe you have even sung popular praise songs that Marty Sampson wrote. And he announced his departure from Christianity with these words. Again, I'm quoting directly. He says, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. 
Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world. And he went on to dismiss Christianity as judgmental. He said, it's not for me. He said, I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not just the I believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Now, this is a guy who made his reputation writing songs of praise based on lyrics borrowed directly from Scripture. And yet, as he publicly abandons the faith, he says something, he says some things that, that suggest he was almost completely out of touch with biblical truth. He was clueless about what others in the church are doing and saying. He's clearly untaught and unlearned in some of the basics of Christian doctrine and apologetics. Listen to him. He writes, quote, this is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love and yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. Now, let's examine this as candidly as possible. To a very large degree, the problem underlying Marty Sampson's loss of faith is that he was in one of the most twisted, heretical, charismatic cults on the planet. He was untaught. He was in a group where they do refuse to admit the fact that miracles are not commonplace, and so they fake it. And if you blend that with a doctrine that encourages people to claim God has spoken to them when He clearly has not, that kind of dishonesty and disrespect for Scripture naturally breeds charlatans and carnal false teachers who do indeed have a very high frequency of moral failure, and in that group, they don't talk about these things. He's right about that. The founder of that group, Hillsong, is Brian Houston. His father was a well-known Assemblies of God pastor and a notorious pedophile who molested children in his church for years, and Brian Houston not only covered up his father's crimes as long as he could, he had his father on the pastoral staff of Hillsong, even after he was aware of his father's perversions. So it is true that Marty Sampson was in a cult where the issues that troubled him are systematically avoided. Now, we talk about those things all the time, but let's face it, Grace Church is unusual in that way. If you were to go to the typical evangelical megachurch today, the average seeker-sensitive church or, or the hip and stylish churches that have multiplied in communities like Santa Clarita, or, or even if you went to the average mid-sized Baptist church nowadays, you would be more likely to hear a comedy routine or a motivational talk or a political rally or a self-help lecture rather than teaching from Scripture. So it's no wonder that people whose only exposure to Christianity is that type of superficial, man-centered, flesh-gratifying religion, it's no, it's no wonder that they would bail out and abandon the faith when the novelty of all of that wears off and some newer fad comes along. In 2009, just 10 years ago, 
Time Magazine declared Calvinism one of the ten ideas that are changing the world right now. Do you remember that? It's been ten years. Hard to believe. It's been that long. doesn't seem that long. But I said then, I don't find that encouraging because whatever is trendy today will always be unfashionable in a very short time. And I figured there would be lots of people who would buy into Calvinism and conservative biblical doctrine, uh, not as a matter of conviction, but just because it was stylish at the time. And I predicted that many of them would turn against the truth as soon as something else, something more faddish, something more stylish would strike them as more appealing. And that is exactly what happened. You think about this, Mark Driscoll and James McDonald were both megachurch pastors in 2009. Ten years ago, they were widely perceived as two of the key leaders and role models in the young, restless, reformed community. Do you remember that the two of them crashed the Strange Fire Conference in 2013? And since then, both of those men have had to step down from the pastorate, disqualified. Both of them left their churches in shambles. Driscoll's church doesn't even exist anymore. Both of these men are now trying to make comebacks into some kind of ministry, but they seem to be making adjustments in their belief systems to sort of account for their own moral failures. For example, Driscoll at one time claimed to be the main spokesperson for the Young Restless Reform Movement. He, he was reformed enough that he named one of his sons Calvin. But on a recent podcast that was, went viral about a month ago, he said this, quote, I don't hold to the five points of Calvinism. I think it's garbage because it's not biblical. He didn't make any biblical argument against the doctrines of grace. His aim apparently was just to make it public that he now renounces what he once taught. He himself doesn't claim to have renounced Christianity altogether, but a large number of people who once followed him have abandoned the faith, large numbers of them. They jumped on the bandwagon because it seemed at the time hip and stylish, but it's just not cool anymore. Lots of observers in the evangelical community have lately been speculating that we're about to see a wave of people abandoning the faith like Josh Harris and Marty Sampson. The truth is, if you look closely, it's already happening, and you can see evidence of it if you just read the comments, for example, under those Instagram posts where Harris and Sampson announced that they were abandoning the faith. People lined up to congratulate them, and scores of those who commented said they also have left Christianity. They're disillusioned with it. They're tired of it. So. What do we make of all of this? Why do people abandon the faith? Because think about it, one of the cardinal tenets of Calvinism is the belief that you cannot lose your salvation. And let me be clear, we don't agree with everything Calvin taught. I sometimes call myself a Calvinist, but I realize, fully realize that some of you may not even like using that term. I get it. If you have a hard time wrapping your mind around the five points of Calvinism, my advice is keep at it, you'll get there. <laughs> but regardless of all that, I think all of us at Grace Church are Calvinistic enough that we believe in eternal security and the perseverance of the saints. 
This is, in fact, built into our church's doctrinal statement. We teach that those who are truly saved cannot lose their salvation. Eternal life, by definition, is forever. True faith will hold fast to the end. And so when someone abandons the faith, we are compelled to ask, how is it that people who are seemingly settled in the faith nevertheless do sometimes turn away from Christ? What are we supposed to think when people who clearly do understand the gospel, they've even preached the gospel, once claimed to believe it, but now they suddenly renounce the faith? What do we make of that? And the Apostle John answers those questions in our text, 1 John 2.19. This is an important verse. It's timely and it's crystal clear, and I purposely asked Reagan to read verses 18 through 29 this morning so that you'd have the context of this. He told you to pay attention, I hope you did, because that's where the context of our text lies. And there's a lot in that passage, but I want to focus almost entirely on verse 19. And notice, first of all, first of all what verse 19 is talking about. Who is it talking about? Verse 18, antichrists, many antichrists. That is the antecedent of the pronoun they in verse 19. And it tells us that these antichrists whom John has in mind are people who are former church members. Now they are false teachers who have defected from the faith, verse 19. They have denied Christ, verses 22 and 23. They have deceived the people of God, verse 26. But apparently these are people who were once professing to believe the faith. They were in communion with the church. And now they've become bitter enemies of Christ. John calls them antichrists. It's not friendly language. And by the way, notice that John uses the language of membership to describe their former status. They were of us, meaning they were numbered with us. They were members of our fellowship. They were insiders. But they went out from us. They left the brotherhood. They terminated their association with us. They ceased their participation in our activities. They abandoned Christ, and they abandoned the church too, and now they've turned against us. Now, in fact, it's important to see, this is the language of membership. Now and then you'll hear people claim that there's nothing in the Bible about formal church membership. Usually that's, that comes from someone who hates accountability and doesn't particularly care to sit under anyone's leadership or teaching. But here and elsewhere in Scripture, it is clear, isn't it, that the early church knew and took note when anyone was added to their number, and they clearly kept track of who was a member and who was not. That's the clear implication of this verse as well. And that and other things that are merely implications of this text nevertheless come through quite clearly. For example, it's obvious, isn't it, that even in the very earliest church, Apostasy was already a widespread problem. He's dealing with this because it's a huge issue. Many antichrists, and it's pervasive in the early church. You see that clear proof of that in Paul's epistles. You see it in 2 Peter and Jude. You see it in the book of Hebrews as well. And here John says that the existence of apostates and antichrists is in fact the definitive sign that we are living in the last hour. What does he mean by that, the last hour? You might wonder why John would say 
these first century Christians were living in the last hour when here we are more than 20 centuries later. Was John mistaken in his eschatology or was he off on his timetable? Of course not. John is using this expression to announce the dawning of a new age. This isn't about predicting when the end of all time will be. The point is that God's plan of redemption had now entered into its final stage of fulfillment, the last days, the last hour. So he's saying the Old Testament, which prepared the way for Christ, that era was gone, and now this final era, which begins with the miraculous outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, this is the culmination of everything the Old Testament ever promised. It's the last hour. It's the climax of human history. It's the last great prophetic period prior to the events that will surround the return and reign of Christ. And so when he says the last hour, he's talking about the whole church age. In fact, the whole of the church age is frequently referred to as the last days in Scripture. You see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, in Jude, verse 18, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 which means that the last days, it's not talking about a very short period of time, the last days extend from Pentecost until the final trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The last days is the period in between those two events. And and here's another significant detail, and this is important because this is what John is is suggesting to his readers the definitive sign of that entire era, the last hour, is the increasing proliferation of apostates, scoffers, false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, antichrists. You see it here in verse 18. Many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. And the Apostle Paul agrees with that in 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. In other words, the, as the end of this era approaches, this problem of apostasy is going to get worse, not better. Paul says it again in 2 Timothy 3.1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self and so on having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. These are false teachers, religious figures. They they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Religious figures who teach falsely, 2 Peter 3, verse 3, scoffers who come in the last days scoffing. And so when we see these cases of apostasy, every new wave of apostasy ought to be a reminder to us that we are living in the last days. This is the final season of human history. This is humanity's last great opportunity for redemption. Christ could return at any time. So be ready. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In Hebrews 3, 7, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. But again, What do we do with those who once seemed to believe, but now they've abandoned the faith? That's the question. How do we read that? What do we make of it? What does it mean? And John touches on three great biblical truths in this one verse 
that combine to give us the definitive answer to the question we all ask when we see this stuff. Three great biblical truths. The first is the danger of apostasy. Number one, the danger of apostasy. I'll give you these three in order, and so if you want to take them down, there's three of them. Number one, the danger of apostasy. Look at the first phrase of our verse, they went out from us. To me, the saddest word in that phrase is the first one, the pronoun they, because it's plural. And it's not a reference to just two or three people. Verse 18 says, there were many. Now, you know what a grief it is to hear that even one person has abandoned the faith. Consider how this must have weighed on John's heart that many antichrists were out there, many people who had departed from us. John is writing as an old man. By now, it seems he is the last remaining apostle. All the others have been martyred. All of them have given their lives for the faith. He has remained faithful and, and alone now as the last apostle. And along the way, before he got to this point, he has seen lots of apostates and false teachers, many. But notice, these are tender words. He's not harsh or angry. No, in fact, notice, he addresses his readers as children. And in the King James Version, it's little children. That is a, an expression John uses nine times in this epistle, five times here in chapter 2 alone. And usually it's the Greek word technion, meaning my offspring, my own sons and daughters. Technion, that's the word that he uses in verse 1, in verse 12, and verse 28 here in chapter 2. It's the diminutive form for children, so little children. In verse 12, he seems to use it to contrast young believers, little children, with more mature Christians, the fathers and young men that he mentions in verse 13. So that's a contrast. Little children there in that verse means you young believers. But Normally in John's epistles, when you see him address his readers with this expression, little children, this is just an, a term of endearment for everyone in the church because he's the elder, he's the old man in the group. The rest of them he regards as his own little children. That is the open expre opening expression here in chapter 2, my little children. He's writing to people who were under his apostolic and pastoral care, many of whom he had personally brought to faith in Christ. In verse 18, though, and also verse 13, he actually uses a different Greek word that also means children. This is paidon, and it means the, essentially the same thing, but with a slightly different emphasis. It's, it's likewise a term of endearment. Technion means my own offspring. Paid on is like saying, you dear little ones. And he uses this word because he's writing as their elder. He is in every sense their elder. As I said, he's older chronologically. He's also the earthly shepherd who has been tasked with overseeing their spiritual well-being. The elder, that was probably how everyone in the church referred to him, the elder. Like we say, our pastor. They said, the elder because he begins his second and third epistles with an address in which that's how he identifies himself, the elder. So in verse 18, when he says, children, it is the last hour, he is directing this message to the entire church. 
And given the nature of this epistle and the lack of any specific church that it's addressed to, this may have been intended for many Christians in many churches, the church universal basically, not just one local congregation. He is writing as the elder statesman to the whole church, nearing the end of a lifetime in which he had suffered greatly, though he wasn't martyred like the others, he suffered more than and longer than any of them. He has outlived and outlasted even the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians 11, you remember, cataloged a very long list of hardships that he, Paul, had suffered. And then at the end, in 2 Corinthians 11, 28, Paul says that the heaviest burden he ever carried, despite all of those obstacles and hardships, the heaviest burden he ever carried was, in his words, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. John must have felt that pressure too, especially as he observed the the growing threat and the growing number of many antichrists, knowing that most of these people who were deadly enemies to the cause of Christ had at one time professed fidelity to the gospel. Some of them surely had been under John's own pastoral care. What a grief! And John is intimately familiar with that grief, going all the way back to his relationship with Judas, Judas who had spurned the privilege of personal discipleship, close friendship, and a trusted position in the inner circle of the twelve in order to turn against Christ and hand Him over to people who wanted to kill Him. That was Judas. That is the spirit of Antichrist in its distilled essence. Antichrist. In short, an antichrist, by John's definition in this passage, is someone who opposes the doctrine of Christ, often while professing to be a disciple. So in other words, these antichrists aren't necessarily avowed atheists. He's warning us about people who profess, or at least at one time professed, to be Christians, but they teach anti-Christian doctrines and do not think for a moment that such people are rare. They aren't, as he says here, rare at all. Many antichrists have come because, after all, it is the last hour. This is the defining mark of the last hour, many antichrists. He is warning us that throughout this entire era of redemptive history, from the earliest days of the Christian church until the return of Christ, and maybe even in a growing, worsening situation, antichrists are going to be a perpetual threat. There were already many of them, he says, before the end of the first century when he writes this. And as a matter of fact, there were thousands of them in Galilee while Christ was physically present there performing miracles. John 6 records the feeding of the 5,000. Most of that multitude, those 5,000, turned away from Christ just like the people John is talking about in our text. At the end of that chapter, John 6.66 says, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Apostates. They loved seeing His miracles, but they hated His teaching, antichrists. And you can be certain that there are many, many antichrists just like that today, and some of them are in the church. Many of them are in the church. Think about it. If they were so abundant, 
when John wrote this, imagine what their numbers must be now, because just consider the sheer size of the visible church today and the vast hordes of people who profess faith in Christ with their lips only while it's clear their hearts are far from Him. Churches overrun with people like this. And yet, doesn't it seem that the vast majority of people who think of themselves even as sound, faithful, solid Christians, conservative evangelicals, most of them, I get the definite sense, most of them would actually prefer never to trouble themselves with trying to figure out and recognize who are the antichrists and deceivers so that we can avoid them. And yet, Scripture tells us repeatedly, be on guard for them. And in fact, if you don't think that's true, that people today really don't care, just go into some public forum, one of the internet discussion groups that features conservative evangelical dialogue. Give a biblical analysis of the errors of some popular heretic and just see what kind of response you get. A few years ago, I posted a video on YouTube showing Kenneth Hagin. He's from my hometown. He was one of the worst charismatic heretics ever. He, he butchered the gospel, made all kinds of false prophecies and false promises. And I, I came across this video that, uh, that showed one of his services where he enters the pulpit ostensibly to preach, but he immediately closes his Bible, makes a great show of doing so, sets it aside, and starts laughing as if he has no control over his own tongue or emotions. And then he walks around the auditorium for about 40 minutes pretending to anoint people in the audience with holy laughter. And then finally, he tells everybody that it was the Holy Spirit who kept him from preaching because the anointing of laughter was more important than the Word of God. It's rank blasphemy. And I posted an annotated just pointing out what he's doing here. And that, I posted that years ago, but even now, virtually every morning when I get up and check my email, there are notices from one or two people who've seen that video and they rebuke me for daring to criticize Kenneth Hagin's teaching. And they all like to quote Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. <laughs> and it is as if today's Christians don't really believe apostasy is a serious or significant danger. And even when someone does abandon the faith as emphatically as possible, like those two recent celebrities, there will always be people, lots of them, who misconstrue the gravity of it. Some of them think the apostasy of someone like Josh Harris is proof that, you know, Christians can, in fact, fall away and lose their salvation after all. And so that idea makes salvation ultimately dependent on the labor and endurance of the redeemed person himself. It means we must depend on ourselves to some degree for the security of our salvation. Others teach such a twisted doctrine of security that they seem to think it's actually possible to abandon the faith completely like that and yet face no serious eternal consequences. And in fact, when these two cases of recent apostasy surfaced, practically every discussion I saw about it on the internet featured comments from people saying stuff like, well, I'm certain Josh was a true believer because the things he wrote really ministered to me, and so I'm confident he'll be in heaven. The Apostle John has a completely different answer to the question of how we should view apostasy. This is not something we should be 
apathetic or optimistic about. Indeed, verse 18 is a reminder that even in the best of churches and the most highly esteemed and spiritually privileged church members among us, people are susceptible to apostasy. People you might think never would abandon the faith may in fact. If so many antichrists could come on the scene before Christianity was even a hundred years old, and if a traitor like Judas could be hidden even among the twelve apostles, no one can ever afford to think of apostasy as a problem we don't need to be on guard against or concerned about. Apostasy is a pervasive, continual, soul-threatening danger. And that's the first truth I want you to see that is stressed here, the danger of apostasy. Here's a second one, number two if you're taking notes, the perseverance of the saints. Verse 19 again, and we'll look at the second half of that first sentence. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. I frankly, I don't know how you could devise a more emphatic affirmation of the doctrine of perseverance. John is clearly saying that those who depart from the faith give us definitive proof that they were never genuine believers to begin with. If they had been genuine believers, he says, they would have no doubt continued. In fact, the King James translator added that expression, no doubt, in order to convey the force of the Greek statement. It's a, subject, a subjunctive verb that stresses the absolute certainty of the if-then statement. If they had been of us, then they most certainly would have continued with us. There's just no wiggle room here. When someone abandons the faith, we simply have no further reason to think that that person was ever truly saved, no matter how convincingly or how long they kept up the hypocritical veneer of piety. Because if they had been true believers, they would have continued in the faith. This is a clear statement of that. And also is the verdict of the preceding phrase there, they were not of us. Now, when John wrote this, I think he had to be thinking uh, in connection with Judas. You know, to most of us, we think of Judas as a diabolical villain with sinister motivations, and, and he surely was. But you would not have known that during those three years he spent as one of the twelve. He gave no hint of his real character. In fact, the closest he ever came is in John 12 when Mary is anointing Jesus with expensive ointment, and Judas is the one who challenges that costly act of worship. He's the one who sanctimoniously says, oh, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John tells us he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But the fact is, John didn't see Judas's hypocrisy at that time. He's writing that account from much later. In fact, Mark tells us that there were other disciples in that room who in their hearts or their heads were making the same complaint as Judas. Judas just led the way in saying it out loud, but some of the other guys seemed to think, this is a reasonable objection. Maybe that expensive ointment should have been sold and the money given to the poor. What about that? And Judas gives voice to that. In fact, Judas may well have been perceived by the most honorable and trustworthy of the disciples as 
someone more honorable and more trustworthy than them because they made him their treasurer. And when at the Last Supper, Jesus just plainly foretells that one of the twelve is going to betray him, every other disciple in that room doubted himself before doubting Judas. No one pointed the finger at Judas. But Mark tells us they all began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Lord, is it I? So John has this long and bitter experience with shocking cases of apostasy, starting with Judas. And in fact, John warns about false teachers in each of his three epistles. It's the main theme in his second epistle, the the central theme. And apostasy is also a theme in the Gospel of John as well. There's that long chapter, chapter long account of massive defection in John 6 that I already referred to. And then also John is the only one of the four Gospels who records Jesus' words about the thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and the hireling who sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. So this is on his mind. John is also the only one who records Jesus' warning about the vine and the branches in John 15, 6, where Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. There's a clear warning about hell for apostates there, and that is a picture of apostasy. These are branches that have no connection to the central vine, and that vine represents Christ. These branches are attached in a superficial way to other healthier branches, and they draw life and energy from those fruit-bearing branches, thus weakening those good branches without actually bearing any fruit of their own. And so those branches are cut off and thrown away, just like the false believers who depart from the faith. And all of those themes, artificial faith, antichrists, apostasy, run through all of the written works of the Apostle John. They are major themes in the book of Revelation as well, especially in Christ's letters to those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And yet, John clearly does not believe any authentic Christian could ever abandon the faith because he frequently stresses the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He says it here in our text, if they were with us, they would have continued. He also quotes Jesus in John 10, verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. John 6, 37, Jesus again says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And all of those promises would be meaningless if it were possible for someone actually to drink of the water of life and then somehow end up in hell. Not possible. Also, if my salvation depends on my own strength and faithfulness, I'll tell you candidly, I would be lost. I'm too weak and too easily defeated to keep hold of my own salvation. But the promise of the gospel is that God holds on to me and He will hold me fast. 
Again, John 10, 29, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 1 Peter 1, 5, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 24 says, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. And 2 Timothy 2.12, I know whom I believed and I am convinced that He is able to guard that which I have entrusted to Him until that day. All of those texts point to the same truth, that genuine saints persevere because God enables them, and He sovereignly keeps them in the faith. He sovereignly keeps them in the faith. It seems we always get back to the sovereignty of God, don't we? But it's right here in the text, and that's actually our third point. The Apostle John affirms not only the danger of apostasy and the perseverance of the saints, but also, number three, the sovereignty of God. Here's the last part of our verse. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Can any good thing come out of apostasy? Of course. Apostasy itself is an evil, but like every other evil, God can and will sovereignly use it for good. And John is saying in this final phrase of our verse that when hypocrites and superficial people abandon the faith, that fulfills one or more of God's purposes for the church. For one thing, it purifies the fellowship because it takes those with the heart of Antichrist out from us. But on top of that, it exposes the reality of the imminent dangers Scripture is everywhere warning us about. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen: 13, false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. After all, Paul says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. I honestly think that most evangelicals today simply do not want to face the truth of that verse, that Satan is disguised as an angel of light. Because if someone today comes as an angel of light, dressed that way, if he's friendly, if he's likable, if he's well-spoken and full of Bible quotations, then it doesn't really matter what he teaches. The average church member today will insist that it's just uncharitable to point out any errors in that guy's teaching. But these apostates stand as periodic warnings and reminders that not everyone who claims to be a believer, not everyone who even looks like a believer, really is. And we need to be on guard. And meanwhile, don't let your own faith be shaken when someone whom you've seen as a brother or even a trustworthy teacher turns out to be another Judas or Antichrist. John says, they went out from us for this very reason, that it might become plain who and what they really are. He's saying that God Himself sovereignly and providentially orchestrates the departure of false Christians from the church so that their hypocrisy might be made obvious to everyone. God is sovereign even over the heart of an apostate. John, at, even at this advanced age, having seen so much apostasy, is not shaken by the apostasy of other people, even though the result is many antichrists, he knows God is still sovereign. 
Now we know the Antichrist is coming. John's readers knew it too. Paul wrote about it at length in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, that day, he's talking about the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, that is the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And Paul adds, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? We know that's coming. It shouldn't shake our faith. Even when the final Antichrist comes, signaling the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, that won't be a surprise to God. All the opposition in the world could never overthrow God's plan or thwart His purposes. God speaks in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10, and here's what He says, "'Remember this, and stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors, and remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose." So the apostasy of people who turn against Christ does not hinder, much less frustrate the purposes of God. On the contrary, it perfectly fulfills His purpose without diminishing the guilt or the atrocity of those who oppose Him. They're actually fulfilling God's plan, not thwarting it. The apostates will eventually be judged for their infidelity. The true church will be strengthened by their exposure, and God's sovereignty will thereby clearly be demonstrated and fully vindicated. So keep the faith. Now, a personal word about apostasy, because I never preach here without realizing that it's possible, in fact, I'd say it's highly probable that some in this very room are superficial saints, not true believers, but apostates in the work, people covering their unbelief and their contempt for God's righteousness with a veneer of artificial piety and a profession of faith. There are, as our text suggests, many who are in that condition. And Jesus said in the final judgment, many will hear Him say, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a terrifying prospect. You don't want to be in that number. But sometimes it's the people you never would suspect who turn out to be phonies and apostates. I've had perhaps four or five trusted friends over the nearly 50 years that I've been a believer who seem to be genuinely devout believers, nothing about them that would ever cause you any suspicion, but they abandon the Lord unexpectedly all different cases, but they were all nice people, all of them intelligent, thoughtful, knowledgeable, doctrinally informed. A couple of them were even active in full-time ministry. So we're not talking about people who briefly made a questionable profession of faith while they were trying to keep one foot in the world. These were people who seemed completely devoted, exemplary disciples, just like Judas, right up until the point where he betrayed Christ. And most of them, the cases I've known firsthand, have had several things in common. In each case, the news of their apostasy came to me as a profound shock and a deep disappointment. I didn't see it coming. But it was not preceded by any plea for help or probing questions from them. 
Nevertheless, after their so-called deconversion, every one of these people described their struggle with nagging doubts as a, a kind of lengthy emotional and psychological battle in which they claimed they were desperately seeking answers from every conceivable source and no one could answer their questions. But in reality, I never had the opportunity to discuss their doubts or questions with any of them until after they were already settled in their unbelief. In my judgment, they eased into unbelief secretly while they were deliberately avoiding sources that they knew might give them solid answers. In other words, they wanted to leave Christianity, perhaps because they were disillusioned and exhausted after years of trying to keep up a hypocritical facade. Hypocrisy will do that to you. And what usually happens is the person will sort of disappear from circles of Christian fellowship for an extended time. And if they do actually express their doubts to anyone, it might be under a false identity on the internet in an anonymous way or whatever. And so shielded by the cloak of anonymity, they'll begin to gravitate towards skeptical forums, people who are raising the same questions that they are and claiming there are no answers to those questions. And if they talk at all to fellow believers about their doubts, they'll usually seek out weak believers and bring up their questions in an argumentative way, not as someone who is genuinely seeking answers. And so let me say this to you today, if you are drifting toward that end, please don't try to wage a private struggle with your doubts. Don't keep faltering under the bondage of some sin that is secretly dominating you. Seek help. Grace Church is blessed with lots of capable teachers who know the Scriptures and have probably wrestled with whatever issues are causing you to drift. We also have lots of seminary students who are pretty sharp when it comes to answering the hard questions. Sometimes the trials of life can drive people towards despair. And if you find yourself resentful and doubting in the wake of some personal tragedy, perhaps, don't cultivate that kind of emotionally driven doubt. We may have no answer for your tragedy other than a willingness to help you shoulder the grief, but we do earnestly want to help you stand and, and to withstand those assaults against your faith. So ask us for help, and we will try to answer your questions with solid biblical wisdom. And here's the irony when it comes to superficial faith. It's actually harder to keep up that veneer of artificial piety than it is to actually trust Christ and know that His perfect righteousness is solid ground. His righteousness imputed to those who believe is literally the only ground on which you can stand before God. Jesus said that at the final judgment, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Didn't we cast out demons in Your name? Didn't we do mighty works in Your name? They'll talk about what they've done to earn eternal life, and all of those efforts are always futile. But just contrast what He said about the tax collector in Luke 18. That guy would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Or consider the thief on the cross. His prayer was a simple expression of faith from a man literally in his death throes who had no hope whatsoever of earning God's favor 
for himself, of doing anything to atone for his own sins. He couldn't do that. But Luke 23, 42, all that thief ever said was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Because faith is the only instrument of our justification. It's not something to trifle with or set aside. Hold on to your faith because by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that means that those who do abandon the faith have abandoned any possibility of salvation. Don't make that error. Repent and put your trust in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the promise of Your power to keep us steadfast. Keep us in the faith. May we yield our hearts in childlike trust, and You give us a greater measure of faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.